Welcome back to Series 4 of Out of Your League. Four series, wow. Mark Flanagan. Very impressive. I didn't think we'd get four episodes at one point. No, when we started in a basement in Cholton, I didn't think we'd think we'd have four series, but we have. And we're back this year with bigger names, bigger guests. 17 episodes every other week because, quite honestly, we ran out of things to talk about when it was every week. So we've, we've spaced them out this year just so we've got enough to talk about. And we're delighted, Mark, aren't we, to be joined by Matt Pete. Head coach of Wigan Warriors. What a guest to start with. Yeah, um, we've had a little chat with Matt off camera. Um, probably the biggest club in the game. Uh, he's got a great story and they've always got lots of expectation uh, and a little bit of pressure at Wigan in the start of the season. So it'll be interesting to know Matt's thoughts on, on, on his journey and what he expects for the year. And um, yeah, to, to chat some rugby league again. There's a notable absence here yeah. right now though isn't the mark there is and it's nice not having one of his shit introductions all about himself from uh will perry i'm sure he'll be back in the next couple of weeks but um you're doing all right are you yeah it's fine yeah. I, i'm glad he's not here you know yeah. the camera's on me then it's yeah. all like me everybody like me pathetic so matt look delighted to have you here mate i know it's a busy it's a busy time of year for everyone but for a super league head coach you know a, a busy time the more busier time than most um Look, I, I watched all the, the press conferences, you being announced as, as head coach, and I, I got everything rugby-wise that I needed from that. But what I didn't get is who you are away from the game. So I wanted to start with that. So, Matt, Pete, just give us your entire life story. I'm just wondering where to start. Uh, well, I'm 37, as we've just discussed, similar age to yourself. It's a great age. A bit younger than John. It's a great age. Uh, I'm a father of two girls, uh, Lily and Winnie. Uh, Winnie, yeah, that's 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 big. Yeah. Winnie the Pooh, yeah, that's what she gets. Is that that your <laughs> book, not quite, no. But uh, we just needed something that sounded good with Pete. It's a quite an awkward name to go with. So we've got Lily and Winnie Pete, uh, and my Mrs. Becker. She works not far from here. She's a solicitor in Manchester. Uh, grew up in Wigan, uh, as as you've probably heard me say, or you've heard. I didn't have a, a great playing career, but I always played rugby from being four or five, as most lads do in Wigan. And then I think when I got to uh, 18, 19, 20, I was at uni, and I'd got involved coaching a local team, literally like under 11s, under 12s, grassroots rugby. And while I was at uni, I continued with that. And my coaching career sort of progressed alongside a struggling academic career in Manchester, so. What were you studying? I studied English. Oh, right. That's interesting. Wow. That's very different. Mm. So what's what? So why English from a young? Just the literature side of it, or books and novels? Or what's what? What kind of? I've always enjoyed reading, uh, and I just wanted to be a bit different at that point. You know, like you do when you're, you're 17 and you're at college. All my mates at the time were doing sports science and sports studies and uh, that sort of thing, and I just fancied uh, doing being different. And I was always quite good at English. So I, I went down that pathway. Uh, little did I know that when I came to uni, I'd spend most of the time set, sat in the back of lectures reading books on rugby league coaching. And uh, It's weird now to think back, but I was quite often doodling the team. For the under 12 and under 13 teams, I was coaching at the back of lectures about George Orwell and Arthur Miller and all these famous books. Uh, and then it come to exam time and I, I hadn't done the work I needed to, so I didn't So that's quit. when you say it was a failing academic career, 
that it was based in your <laughs> your love for rugby league, the reason you were failing. No, when I look what, yeah, I was still I was coaching. I was still playing at the time, uh, sort of semi-professionally, but it was uh, it was my studies that suffered. But I enjoyed coming to Manchester. I enjoy uh, you know getting amongst it, and I did enjoy the reading. I must admit, and the and the lectures. I learnt a lot about a range of different things, philosophy and drama and things that I probably never would have looked into with as much depth. And again, in hindsight, it probably did set me up for uh, developing myself as a coach. Now when I learn about coaching and uh, sort of leadership and developing people, a lot of the things that I learned through my studies, surprisingly, uh, I draw upon. And uh, also in my career, as I developed as head of youth, the ability to write in a decent manner, uh, present in a decent way. Uh, I think it made a positive impression. It allowed me to get my points across in the right way to not just my teams and my staff, but external partners. When I go to uh, things on behalf of the club, I've always enjoyed sort of getting my point across. And I think that goes back to my studies. Were you quite headstrong as a, as a kid? Because to me, a 17 year old rugby player from Wigan, I find it probably very different, like you said, that they would go and do an English degree at Manchester. Probably a bit of piss-taking from your teammates or whatever. That's that's a different route that most people who play in an amateur or semi-professional team would do. Is that something you just didn't give a shit what anyone thought you, you wanted to go and do your studies in English? I suppose when I look back, yeah. Uh, you don't feel you, I'm headstrong, do you? You just think, well, I'd like to do this, so that's what I'll do. And I've always been a little bit like that. I think when I... When I stopped playing at the time, when I did as well, to focus on coaching, that was seen as, as a big decision. Because when you've played from being four or five and you've played on rep teams and you've got paid a little bit of money, it kind of ends up that it, playing rugby defines you and everyone, oh, that's Mark the rugby player. Or, you know, you'll have had that a lot in your lives. And uh, I think by jacking in, studying, going on certain holidays and just trying to be a bit different maybe I was trying to sort of break away from the norm it's only now that I that I think that uh but yeah it's funny how I've ended up back as a, a rugby man so yeah you've gone full circle you're back you, you know you know yeah. the, the stereotype yeah. you're trying to get away from 100% I wouldn't have picked it would you uh, I, I didn't know that about reading you. an article this morning no no I wouldn't have picked that but it's interesting the the things that you learn and what you take into different strands of your life and the the reading, you know, philosophy and, and these big sort of bits of literature have informed, you know, how you view your job now. Yeah, definitely. And I think just having an open mind, I think that's what I got from university more than anything was, uh, took me out of the bubble, uh, took me to a city, uh, meeting new people from all sorts of different walks of life. And then as soon as you get into reading, you know, the, everything's open to you, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, reading different kinds of books, different texts, and uh, quite often last minute when I should have read it weeks in advance, but still I, I managed to learn quite a bit. You, you mentioned some really basic stuff there about coaching, and I, it just resonated with me in particular about the ability to present, the ability to articulate yourself, the ability to, to write accurately what you mean. Like, for me, Mark, you'll work with coaches as well. Like, those basic fundamental things are hugely important in any organisation. Commun yeah, communication's that, that one. Presenting your ideas, but listening to them as well. 
Um, the best coaches I've played for could articulate a game plan or a narrative before a game. So in a 30, 35 season, a game season, there's going to be some games where it's going to be hard to find an angle against a team. Like, how can I motivate my boys against this team to get them up for it? Because there becomes there will be peaks and troughs during every season. And I think the best coaches are good communicators and great storytellers. And finding a narrative before a wakey away or a tough trip, tip, trip to France when you've depleted on troops or whatever, finding that angle is something that probably Matt from his, his, his English studies and reading about history in different parts of the world and probably being um, more or as well-rounded as most coaches from his own experiences is something that you can probably take from, from, from those experiences and, and bring, it, bring to life before a match and motivate those lads. And it's while you were studying, you were studying rugby league coaching and you started coaching. What was that junior club that you first started with? It's a club called West Horton Lions, so it's not even as far as amateur clubs in around in and around Wigan. It's not one of the obvious ones. What it, what's what we're we talking? Saint Pat's, Saint Jude's. Isn't it, isn't it on the yeah. way to Bolton? Isn't it? Yeah, it? you could go on and on. Most of the yeah. players that I coach didn't uh, watch rugby, yeah. so my the first thing I I did, which is something I still talk about now, is I tried to instill a proper love of the game, not just an understanding of why and how you do certain things, but a passion for watching and learning and time with your friends, with rugby being the thing that brings you together. And that's something that you still still push into this, you know, you, this Wigan team now that you've taken charge of, you know, that passion for the game, is that something that you've pushed onto them? It is, yeah. And I think if you want them, if you want them to be passionate about the game and enjoy it, you have a responsibility to make it enjoyable. You can't just tell them you need to enjoy it. You've got the best job in the world, and then all you do is smash each other and run up hills. Uh, of course, there's got to be elements of that because that's the game. But uh, I do want them to love coming to work. I want them to be excited to train. They, they probably laugh at me when I because I do say this a lot. I want them excited to train, excited to play, uh, and I know it's difficult when it's your job. But I think there's a way, uh, and that, that's one of my goals, is to get the players looking forward to coming into work. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts, but it does go back to my original philosophy of you want them to be in love with the game. If they're going to have a decent career, you know, from age 10 to 35, 36, what I've seen and my experience tells me the best players I've seen first stand, Sean O'Loughlin being one, Thomas Lulawai being another, from what I hear about people like James Robey, they get the balance right between being a mint professional, but uh, enjoying the company of the teammates, having a laugh, uh, not taking it too serious all the time. And it's a really difficult thing to, uh, to get across to a junior player that. Uh, but I think if you can sort of set an example and promote it, uh, having the crack, basically. Yeah, yeah. That balance is important, Flash, isn't it? 100%. Um, someone asked me, um, what was the one bit of advice you'd give to a young player starting out, out playing professional sport? And I'd say, just be all in. In everything you do, every training session, every match, every team social, every coffee get-together, be all in and just be consumed with it and don't be on your phone and just enjoy it. Whether you like a beer or not, or just just take your whole self into every experience because you get the most out of it then. If you're investing to your teammates, 
off the field, you'll get more out of them on it. If you invest in training, whether that's just a hill session or every weight session, you'll get more out of it on the field. And when I look back on my career, I'm pretty satisfied with what I did because... I oh, you were all in. I was all in. Every, do you want to go for a coffee? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was go that, for a beer? Yeah. yeah. That was that dickhead who just fucking would turn up to everything. So I, that's, that's the one thing that I can... I hold my head up and I invested in my career in all different facets. Now, I see some lads who'll, who'll give and take a little bit and they won't probably make the connections off the field that they will on the field and they won't reap the rewards on the field. And I think it's really key that to, to, provide, to create a good team environment, you need all the players working together. And it's them little one and two percenters that I think um, you, you kind of shows in the end. Yeah, passion's such a big word, right? It's a massive, it's a massive word. And, you know, maintaining a passion for what you do over any period of time is a challenge, right? You know, I, I just don't think that's an easy thing to come up with. So you say getting the lads excited to be at training. What tactics are you going to use or what things are you going to put in play to make sure that's the case? Because throughout a season, throughout a career, you know, that's a challenge. Throughout a two-year career, it's a challenge to maintain somebody's passion. So what, what sort of things, what, do that, what does that look like? I think they need a sense of belonging. I think they need to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, I think giving them some ownership over what they do when they come in. I think the modern athlete sort of expect, uh, expects that and deserves it. So I think giving the players some choice around what they do and uh, undercover, undercover sometimes, you know, there's got to be some hard work done. But uh, you, I think there's always room for some laughter, even at the, at the tough moments of the season. Uh, I think if lads are having fun and you're giving them some space, time, permission to just enjoy it through this company and chat about stuff what's not always rugby related or work related. I think that you can uh, sneak the rugby in, in and around it at times. Uh, so yeah, I think ownership's the big one, John. I think if they feel like they've got some control of the programme, uh, but th there's a responsibility on them then as well. Uh, and that's where it goes about getting the right people through the door. Yeah, yeah, an investment in, in listening to people, taking on board feedback flash. And, and then adapting what you do off the back of that feedback. It's really easy to listen to somebody say, oh, you know, could we do this? Should we change that? And then it's actually sometimes more damaging to hear that and not act on it, isn't it? Yeah, that ownership's massive. I remember in certain periods of my career where some little things like discipline, but lateness or wrong kit or whatever, little infringements, letting the playing group run that, the discipline, pulling people up rather than, being like a headmaster, that dictatorship kind of model of, of leadership. That's one way that I've seen ownership of playing groups really, really do well. And, I've, and you said before about belonging. When you're in a family and you kind of, you have complaints or feedback from your mum and dad, you feel, it feels much better when you know it's taken on board and there's acted on it because the lads care for a reason, don't they? I think so. And, uh, I feel very fortunate to get this role when I have with uh, the support staff that I've got. You know, we've mentioned Sean Wayne being involved and Chris Redlinski. Then I've got assistants, Lee Breers, Sean O'Loughlin. My leadership group, or our leadership group, with Tommy Lulawai, Liam Farrell, John Bateman, Willie Isa, uh, and Sam Powell. My job really is to sort of 
bring all that expertise together, drawing it all, and then make sure that the messaging's clear, which I think is where, you know, I feel my, my communication skills, my listening skills come in. If I can pull the, the right messaging from the right people there, uh, that, it's not a simple job, but the, the, the expertise and the knowledge is in the room. It's just my job to get it out. Yeah, and let's get inside your, your mindset. We've got into it here that you've got the Wigan job. You're the head coach of Wigan Warriors. You speak about belonging. Well, if you play for Wigan Warriors or you're part of that club, there is no bigger sense of being part of something that's bigger than yourself than that. It's the biggest name, arguably, in this in this country for, for rugby league, you know, renowned in, in the Southern Hemisphere as, as well. So that, that belonging is huge. But let's get inside your mind, right? You've just been told you're going to be Wigan Warriors head coach for 2022. Like, what's happening? People ask me about, was you overjoyed? Was you ex excited straight? Or was you uh, ecstatic? I never, I've never for one second had that feeling. Uh, I've had excitement about sort of the planning side of it. Uh, I've had philosophies and I've had uh, opinions, strong opinions when I've seen things being done in the past good, bad, uh, and ugly, and you have, a, you have an impression of how you would go about things. So it was sort of like, right, I'm up now, I'll pull it all together. And uh, I just started to make notes, make plans, make presentations. There's no fist, but there's no like, take yourself in a dark room and, and celebrate, no. even on your own. You were wearing black clothes, I guarantee, when you got told. I've only seen you wear black clothes. I've only got black. That's it. There's a white t-shirt under it. In your career, John, did. Did you have loads of fist pump moments when no. you look? No, no, you're right. I mean, this, the, you know, it's a great, it's a great question. You should do this job. Um, I think when you start fist pumping, you're in trouble. When you start celebrating, you're in trouble, because the reality of a, a job or a journey to excellence or being good or being as good as you can be, very rarely has any sort of destination point. It has points on the way in which you celebrate flash doesn't it but 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 celebrating these moments because Matt's aspiration is not to be Wigan head coach for 2022 is to be a successful Wigan coach for a number of years to be a successful custodian of that job for as long as it is his so celebrating too much can can be a yeah, dangerous it's thing. a journey you sell you might celebrate a win for five minutes and then it's on to the next thing but yeah like I said the big outlandish Yes, I've done it. It's just, you, you're setting yourself up for failure down the next corner, aren't you? So it's the journey, the peaks and the troughs that, that, that make what we, what we did and what Matt's currently doing in professional sport. That's, that's the beauty of it. And um, yeah, being at a club like Wigan and being around the likes of Michael Maguire and Sean Wayne, that's, that's the norm, isn't it? Because excellence is expected and nothing else is good enough. So... Unless that excellence is met, then it's just another, the show goes on. Yeah. I was going to say, I think just growing up in Wigan at the time when I did, you don't think of it being any different. You know, you, they talk about Wigan fans being spoiled. I was one of those spoiled fans who just went to Wembley every year. And, uh, and then as you, as you uh, look forward, when I started coaching at the club, it was just at the time when Michael Maguire came in. So... My first experience of a professional organisation was super intense, as everyone knows now. Is he the most? He's one of the most intense characters I think yeah. I've come across. Yeah, 
One of them. Outwardly. Yeah, outwardly. 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 And, uh, yeah, I suppose it's how you gauge intensity. But he was here for a short spell, wasn't he? So it was sort of, you give it everything. And, uh, what did you learn from him? Because I was at Wigan in 2009 under Brian Noble. Then I, I left, Nobby left. And that's when Michael Maguire came in. And watching from when I was in Australia, the, the Wigan side, the performances and the camaraderie and the, the will to win, all that was in stark contrast to the previous year. And it was all, all because of this new regime of, of Madge coming in. What, what, what was it like seeing him in practice and, and what do you learn from him? Well, it wasn't just him. If you look at that time, him, Sean Wayne, uh, Mark Bitcoin came in and Chris Radlinski. And so remembering that I hadn't seen anything different professionally, so I was just struck with the intensity, the simplicity of it, the fact that hard work overcame anything. You know, that team that didn't have a great deal about it, you would say. But was, when you look at that squad now, it looks a strong squad, even though it wasn't doing well. It was desperate for success. It was hungry. It was the right, it was the right regime at the right time. Uh, so it just proved to me that uh, environment is everything. Um, standards is everything. It's a throwaway term, standards, but what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept and being open and honest about that. Uh, it just, I suppose it was what I expected a professional organisation to be like from the outside. Uh, it was it was more from other people that I heard that that's not, it, not how it had been before. Yeah. Do you, do you care what people think about you? Uh, yeah, I'd be daft to say, yeah. or I'd be lying if I said or. Yeah, and what do you think people's take on you being announced as head coach was? Uh, people who know me probably thought it was, a nat or people who know the club, probably thought it was sort of a natural step, sort of well-earned, and that I could, uh, that maybe that I'd heard my stripes. People who don't know me would have been un underwhelmed. I think there's a, there's a, a longing for overseas. There's a longing for ex-players that has a, a glamour attached to it and I think fans can associate it with it straight away because it's new and it's fresh and it's exciting and I'm probably none of those uh, which is fine but I also know that whatever they, they hear or think at the start would only have lasted till round one anyway so uh, I, I wasn't I, I couldn't concern myself too much with that yeah. uh, and I don't no, no. So let's get just go back a bit, right? You're at West Horton coaching. I just want to understand how you get from there to then getting into the head of performance at Wigan or the junior development at Wigan and, and, and how that happened. Because rugby league and coaching had already got its claws into you at this stage. You know, for you to be studying and, and to be using your spare time to coach and understand coaching, it already got its hooks into you. I'm just wondering what changed to take it from something that you just did as a bit of something to give back into something that you maybe saw as a future for yourself? I mean, there was only the actual first session that I went to where I did it as a favour. He only asked me to go to one session and then I just got, on a, got attached to the lads, really. So I wanted to go and watch them that week, then I wanted to help them a bit more. So in wanting to help those lads, I directly wanted to improve as a coach to help them. Uh, for no, at no point whatsoever did I even think I would coach on a Wigan scholarship 
uh, let alone what I'm doing now. But so I just always wanted to improve to impact them. Uh, so I went to everything that I possibly could, read everything I possibly could, uh, paying for DVDs from Australia, reading everything. Uh, and then I just started, started attending workshops put on by what they call the service area. And then I had an assistant coach for the service area. Then someone asked me to go and watch the scholarship. So I went watching. Then I'd go watching the academy train and I just kept turning up to things. <laughs> Honestly. The shit that won't flush. That's Matt Pete just keeps turning up. Uh, Who's this guy over here in a black tracksuit? So true. <laughs> Even when uh, when Madge and, and and Sean started coaching, I was the academy coach then. But I just went to everything because I was only at uni, so I just wouldn't go. Or I'd have loads of time off. I'd watch every session, every team meeting. I'd always be meeting people away from the game to. But it was always done with a view of trying, if I learn this, I can help the players. And what really got you going in those early stages? What, what excited you? Was it the, the tactical, strategic uh, aspects of coaching and skill development? Or was it more personal, improving people as, as men and building a team? Was it, was it the, the person or the skill kind of thing? I think at first I thought it was the, the rugby side of it. Yeah. So I'd always be trying to find a new drill or a new set play or copy something I'd seen on TV. Uh, and then you start realising the, the buzz that you get, the thrill that you get from it is actually seeing the young, young men develop, young players develop, uh, seeing them come together as a group. You know, so when you see, I'll go back to the first team I coached, when you see them, well, I still know a lot of them now and they're still best mates and they've had a great, some great experiences together. Uh, and we have a great laugh about it. I think it's that that you get hooked on uh, and you realise that the game and the intricacies around it are just the focal point. That focal point could be another sport, it could be a different hobby, it could be a trip abroad. Whatever everyone's got, that shared experience, uh, that focus, that belonging, I think it's probably irrelevant. It's probably, uh, well it is, it's bringing a group of men together and pointing them in the right direction. And we've, we've sort of wandered into your philosophies here, haven't we? About how you see the world and ultimately then how that defines you as, as, as a leader. When, you know, I was watching you be announced and, and, and press conferences and all of the shit you have to do when you get the position that you've got. And you mentioned a word and you, you must have mentioned it maybe five or six times, different interviews, and it, and it was caring. And, 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 you know, you wanted to care for your team and it stood out for me because that's not a word I, it, it's important. I know it's important, but it's not a word I hear said out loud often. How big of your sort of skill set of your toolbox that you've got in coaching is caring and what does caring look like for you? Firstly, I'll say that I think all the good coaches care. They're probably just not always comfortable saying it. Uh, I think it's a word that's got a bit of softness attached to it. Uh, I don't see it like that. I think that to lead and to uh, and to coach and develop people, you've got to have that sense of caring for them. Uh, else, you won't get buy-in, and else, you won't be very, you won't be genuine in what you do. Uh, but it's important to stress that there's two sides to that care. Uh, there's not just the the friendly. Uh, happy-go-lucky, 
you know, back slapping side of Kerr that's there's a, probably, sin there's a sinister side there is a sinister Matt side to it Kerr. and uh, yeah there is <laughs> and it's important to qualify it and uh, explain that sometimes uh, curring for someone John might be telling them straight telling them something they don't want to hear uh, at that point when it's the most difficult to tell them but in the long run it's probably the best uh, and I'm comfortable doing that because I know Genuinely, it comes from a good place. And they might not always agree with me and they might not always see it. Uh, but that's my, that's my approach. And sometimes, caring for the group might be bigger than caring for one individual. So he's known, might be put out a joint, but it's what's best for the team. So as long as you're trying to do everything with a, a sense of looking after people, looking after the group, uh, and you know that you've come from a good place to begin with. I think you can look yourself in the mirror, but uh, I mean, the other thing that I try and promote is that the lads caring about one another, which uh, again, I think most good teams, most good organizations talk about being selfless, talk about uh, looking after your mate. Uh, it's just probably a different word that's been attached to it. And that's, that's hard. That's hard just to kind of to say and without any actions behind it. I think you've, as a good coach would create opportunities for that kind of camaraderie and that um, teamwork to be built because you can say look after your mate but if John next to me he's not a big I'm not a big fan of him unless there's kind of opportunities for that to be to grow um, that's that's the key to that I think it's purpose as well purpose and meaning and, and, and collective buy-in being part of something bigger is in life sometimes you know, as valuable of the status as what you're doing. If, you know, feeling connected to something infinitely bigger than yourself immediately, I think, gives you a sense of committing to something that you will never surpass. It's not an individual, like, I think, benchmark to surpass the team that you play for, to become bigger than the team that you play for. You know, I was very fortunate to play at St. Helens and it was a similar mindset when it was at its best, is that the the club is everything and we give everything to that, but the common purpose and, and being collectively attached to something that's bigger than you, I think is, is, is hugely important. And, you know, we were just chatting about this caring and the considerate side of it. You know, we were chatting about Alex Ferguson. Now he was renowned Flash, wasn't he, for the hairdryer and giving people the hairdryer, but that didn't define him as a, no. as a coach. I, I, I've listened to a few interviews Cristiano Ronaldo did when he first came back to United start last season. And it was a phone call that, that Sir Alex um, made to him to convince him to come back. And some of the words he used about him when he first came over from Portugal was he'd spend time with his family, he'd, he'd invite him around for dinner, he'd do all these things away from the game to make him feel welcome. Now, he probably he, he would have known at that time that he was going to be a superstar, but he still probably would have done that with a lot of other players, I'd, I'd imagine. It's that fatherly figure and that care and honesty that he would give the players really would make them buy in. And we're seeing Man United reap those rewards when they sign him because as we talk about bigger than a team or bigger than a club, those kind of actions of returning when all your other teammates have gone just because of the memories you had all those years ago, that's just, it's a really strong pull and a really strong um, thing that, that some coaches can do. I'm interested as well, you know, you, you head of youth, you know, you're in charge of young people's dreams and aspirations. You talk about caring and the tough side of care, not, not just the, the, I suppose, the kind side of it. There's no tougher place than being a, a junior coach who's got to tell kids bad news, is there? That, is that 
some of the hardest things you've had to do as a professional? Yeah, genuinely, genuinely very, very difficult. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I could have flashbacks about certain meetings now where you're telling a young player that they don't have a future at the club. Uh, and you might know that something's gone on in their personal life that's hindered them in the last two or three years and they've not had the opportunity to develop themselves the way they should or they might not have the backing at home. Uh, they might have really uh, parents who, are, who aren't understanding or going to be harsh on them and you know they're going to cop a bollocking in the car on the way home. Uh, so you can put all these things in place to try and do it the right way but there's no, there's no easy way to, to break that to a, to a kid. And, uh, Does it yeah. sit heavy with you, those conversations? Uh, I suppose it must do. I, don't, I didn't enjoy it and I don't like the way it's, it's all done, really. But mm. it's, it's, it's sort of professionalising childhood, isn't it? So yeah. you're having a professional discussion with a child. So it's, uh, Via the parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's really, really difficult. All you can try and do is make that exit, uh, you can put systems in place so it's not a shock, so you have reg they get regular feedback, and try and manage their exit the best you can where they go to another environment, uh, or you try and get them a shot somewhere else. But it's not always possible, and it's still genuinely, like you would have experienced at St. Helens, it's not where the player wants to be. So a player's dreamt about being at Wigan for so long, and you've got to start try to try and explain that at that point, and that's all it is quite often. At this point, my opinion is you're not going to do it. Uh, and I know my opinion's no more important than anyone else's, really. Um, no, that's just my job at that point in time. But at, at that point in time, you're public enemy number one, and uh, you can try and be as current in your delivery as you want. He's got to go in school the next day and tell everyone he's been flicked. So it's really, really difficult. Uh, in hindsight, I think it prepared me for difficult conversations down the line. Uh, so this week, for example, to tell to tell grown men that they're not in the team going to Hull KR, it's not nice. It's it's difficult, but I've had worse. Yeah. And what about you, Matt? Your career, you know, difficult conversations. How did they play out? Been dropped quite a few times. So, um... <laughs> what was the work? What you know, was that ever handled badly? And if so, how? I think it'd only be handled badly if there wasn't any honesty behind it. If you were told that the more honest a coach is towards a player, the more the player accepts it. If they kind of skirt around it or the, or they kind of try and sugarcoat a decision, like you need a rest or I've, I've had them all, honestly. Um, but if, you, if you're told, look, I think this player's better than you and you're gonna have to work hard to get back in the team. I think players accept that a lot more um, because there's always gonna be tough, tough decisions to be made for coaches. So honesty is key. And then I think, having a good culture at the club where leaders can kind of, and that, that's, that uh, leadership group can display the right actions if they're ever in that situation. That's really key for stemming down like the, 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 uh, the behaviours for when other players are uh, put in that situation, I find. Yeah, honesty's, honesty is, is massive, isn't it, you know, in sport. And, and it's easy, look, you're talking about being a grown man and dealing with that. But I, I, it blows my mind. I think my junior career was good news quite a lot along the way. I didn't have to deal with bad news. But I'm just trying to get into your head, sat in front of two parents and a kid and telling the parents and that kid it's a no. And it's 
those moments are huge, aren't they? In someone's life, it might be the most important thing that you have to deliver in somebody's young life, isn't it? Absolutely. And like I said, I'd known times where they'd had illness in the family for 18 months, two years, or they'd been injured, or just all sorts of circumstances. And sometimes you, you, you'd have the temptation that you could extend, maybe we'll give you a trial period, or well, it's easy to give them a one-year contract. But I'd pride myself in sort of, if it needed saying, I'd, I'd rather say it to them uh, and just allow them to move on with the next stage of life. I used and to always see it on X Factor on a Saturday night, a big, big X Factor one fan everybody. And there'd be someone on a bit absolutely horrific. And then they'd all say, oh, you're not very good. Well, it's not your time. And then Simon Cowell used to always blow the legs off and say, stop doing this. You're wasting your life. And I remember sitting back thinking, He's doing the right, even, we talk about honesty. Is that how you delivered it? That's maybe <laughs> Stop not, doing this, you're maybe wasting. Not, uh, every, every kid, but <laughs> yeah. being honest uh, is better in the long run for some kids who, who, who might not have a career in the game rather than chasing it and wasting half their life and something they might not get to, get to achieve. It's a big challenge as well for parents to, to step back in that situation, you know, not have a strong opinion in favour of their child. And it remains a challenge for me, the balance between coaches and parents mm. at a junior level, you know, as you become, you know, an adult, it's easy for me to navigate the biases of my parents because they see the world through these rose tinted spectacles. They don't understand why Keith Senior knocked me out in 2008. Mm. I understood it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Your mum still talks about that. Doesn't she you? does. But a couple of gins. Th those... You know, the, the, the relationship between coaches and parents as a junior is important. As you get into head team, first team coach, it's less important because you've got established egos, characters, and you've got people who are strong enough to sort of deal with that. I want to move on now to Wigan mm -hmm. Warriors, first team last year. And I'll start with you, Mark. What was your take on their season last year? I've... I feel it's a bit reminiscent of remember when Leeds had that big they were successful for a long time and then twenty fifteen they won the treble and then for the next few years they're in transition a little bit where they had a lot of the senior players left and a lot of the juniors came through. And I think Wigan probably went through a bit of a transition period last year. Um it'd be interesting to know know Matt's thoughts, but on the field I think there was a will to win and a desire but probably wasn't executed or they, they didn't have a right balance, I think, in the team in certain positions, I'd say. Um, but Matt talks a lot about culture, I think, um, in the press conference. And I just wondered, is has that been um, a, re a reaction to last season that you think that's something that needs to be improved on? Yeah, I think it does, yeah. I think... Uh, and when, when you say improved, I think just taken in a different direction. Uh, I and... We, as a senior management team, feel that the culture needs to be brought in line, I suppose, with what the expectations of the club are. And that's of, of no fault of anybody's. It's just the way it's probably uh, eroded over the last few years. Uh, maybe other things were placed more important than the culture. Uh, individuals' performances, maybe, or certain people at certain times. I think that uh, our recruitment has been brought in line a little bit. And I think that just the way we go about our work on a day-to-day -day basis. Because mm. it's from, when was the last, was it 2018, 2017, 18, that Wigan last won Super League? I think the playing roster from there to now is very different, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's very different. Uh, a lot of young players that have come through and then probably in the last two years, a few overseas signings as well. And a lot of uh, senior players, like you say, have, have, have finished playing. Yeah. And it's hard, I think, Culture is a word that's banded around all the time, and it's we can I, I see it as a a, a pattern of behaviours. Now I think if uh, like a an established con um, successful team is slowly but surely kind of loses their their players, it's 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 easier to kind of keep those habits in place. But I think when it's over a two or three year period where most of them leave, it's hard to see you know those habits still remain. I'd say. And I think that's yeah. probably it's it's it's, it's evident that it's, it's something that you guys are kind of yeah culture of. again talk about passion being a massive word culture is a massive word isn't it it's like the fabric of your your working life it's like everything it's not it one thing or it, not it's, it's everything. everything it's every interaction it's every relationship and without making excuses if there's one if there's been a few years where culture's been hard to uh, instill with a high turnover of players and staff it's been during COVID when... When it's more oh, important than ever, I'd yeah. say. When, you, when you're away from your training base and, and you've, you've got to work hard, that's the time when culture falls down because people will toss it off because they don't have to. Whereas if you've got... Like, Saints have been hugely successful during this last three or four years because during COVID, they've had a, um, a team that's been successful. They've had a playing group that's remained constant. They've had some strong leaders and they've probably been able to kind of ride all the tough times they've had by this, this, this pattern of behaviour, this culture, yeah. which is why they've been successful. So we got Mark's take on, on last year. I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to, to you know, you as the, the, the new coach, what was your take on, on, on last season? Uh, culturally, look, you know, that's an evolving thing isn't it? over a longer period of time and you'll be look, working hard to improve that. But what, what was your take on the year? What, what, what things did you draw from it? I think, uh, in hindsight, the fact that uh, Bevan and Jackson uh, missed a big chunk of pre-season, I, I felt personally it was a little bit like the, the group was sat waiting for them to come in and uh, the way we were talking, I felt like, felt a little bit like that, which frustrated me. Uh, then Bevan came back, got injured. Then Jay Field, who, who was a big part of our plans, got injured. And then Tommy Lulawai got injured. So without... Uh, this isn't making excuses, but I think the fact that we'd set a squad up around individuals and then them individuals weren't there. Uh, we won seven on the bounce. We've, we've probably scraped seven wins, but we were winning. Uh, and then it all fell apart when we went to France. And I don't think the foundations were there to withstand that shock. Uh, and through no lack of effort, we never really got ourselves in a, in a fluent, winning mode it was always like either an ugly win or an ugly loss it's an exciting time though for you because you know this year you get look i don't think there's many times in the history of a wigan team that you can say you can make a real difference to a side you know there, there's always there or thereabouts but there's for me there's a bit of discontent in the fans last year um and it's an exciting time for you to come in and, and some great names in your squad, so you've got to be excited about 2022. Yeah, massively so, and uh, I'm excited to be sort of leading it along with the, you know, with Sean and Chris, and it's on me now, isn't it? Ultimately, you know, I'm saying this stuff about our culture, and uh, rightly so, things have been labelled at the way we've played the game. Uh, so 
I like having ownership of that uh, or a big part of of the say on the way we go about our, our business. And it's not just results. I think it's the way we conduct ourselves. I think it's the way we engage with people, interact with people, and then and then the way we play. Uh, the way we play, I think, has got to reflect what we, what we want to be about as a group. And what sh what should the fans expect to see from from Matt Peake's Wigan team this year? What characteristics do you do you expect and you are you striving towards for your team to, to play? Can, with I, this can I just jump in there as well? Because another, a really interesting thing from listening to you speak is the distance between the fans and the playing group, or the distance between the performance side of the club and the fans. Mm. And I think similar sort of topic is. How do you, and you've mentioned this, close that gap? Because uh, there's frustration from Wigan fans, rightly so. They've got a high benchmark for what's good. Yep. You speak a lot about closing that gap. But how, where do you start with so that? So answer John's question, then you can do mine in a minute. <laughs> I'll just tell you what I think. Yeah. Uh, firstly, I think uh, things get mentioned about the playing style quite a bit and they have as long as I've been associated with, with Wigan about what uh, would that be that it's a bit dour to bit watch bit dour bit robotic bit uh, what's the word grindy yeah. uh, lack of excitement lack of freedom but I think uh, that's heightened in the last few years because the, the Wigan fans not only are they used to success they're quite well educated on what a good team looks like and that's not always just throwing the ball about as you know it's about playing the right style at the right time. Looking organised, uh, like really well organised. Uh, as much as I'm talking about freedom and uh, well, I will talk about people going off structure, I feel like when you do sit in your structure, you've got to look like it's quite militant and precise, I think the word, accurate. Uh, so I, I feel like there's a, we owe it that when we're, all, when we're on, we look like we're, we're well rehearsed and we're synchronised and that comes back to that connection. Uh, but then there has to be a freedom to move the ball at the right time and uh, trust the players you've got underpinned by high skill levels, which I think that's where the hard work needs to come in, like smash your individual skill. And then if you see an opportunity on game day, you should have the confidence to take it. Uh, so that... I don't know whose question I've answered there, but I feel like that's the kind of team I want to coach. Uh, you know in this game, hard work underpins everything. So the team needs to be never accept being outworked, uh, but also look like they're enjoying the work. I feel the fans get a sense of that when uh, when players are enjoying the rugby. I think that, that translates over to the crowd and... Uh, it can take over a stadium, can't it? If you, it's if you get yeah. it is, yeah. And uh, I think that's that's when then it goes back to the belonging, you know. It's uh, and the journey, and it's taking the fans on the journey with us. So there's a lot to it, and it started with us being uh, heavily involved in the community during during our pre-season, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but I do think the way you play the game can can get get people on board with you. Mark, your take on that. Have you been in a team where there's been a big disconnect or a disconnect has appeared over a period of time? Yeah, I, I've, yeah, a couple of times. And the disconnect's been between a couple of personnel and the group. And there was a period when we had quite a bit of success when there was this disconnect. But 
it, it, the group had to work really, really hard to keep it on board, and they had to work too hard to kind of stay on track. Um, but what I'd say with that is it's very short-term. You can't do that long-term. I think some clubs who kind of have short-term success might have certain um, cl 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 clicks. Cliques. That's the word, cliques. cliques. Yeah, um, but I think for a strong organisation and a strong culture, you, that can't happen, especially if you want success over a number of years. One thing that um, Matt mentioned there, and based on my review of Wigan last year or last few years, is I think they've got a lot of players who work really hard, especially yep. in the middle of the park. They might always have different facets to the game, but there's a lot of really tough, hard-working players in there. So in terms of building those standards, I think there's a really good base there. For, for You'll be well aware of this, for, for, to, to build on. Um, and I think a lot of those are young players as well, which is says a lot about the Wigan Academy and, and the Wigan Club as, as, as a whole, that those standards are probably bred from a long age, young age and they're probably, um, you know, from from years gone by from the previous head coaches that instilled that system in place. I thought like a lazy analysis of, of last year for Wigan was that the disconnect between the fans and the playing group or the club were just a bit disconnected was due to performance alone. And and as an outsider looking in and look, life is rarely as simple as those things and, and, and you know, I, it made me think back to a time maybe where there was a disconnect between the St. Helens team, the club and the fans. And at that time, I remember we became mega defensive. We shut the shutters down, you know, stopped going on appearances to local clubs. Um, it became almost us against them mentality. And, and, and that's just a toxic sort of environment because when you're part of something that's bigger than you, you've got to let everybody into it. And I think Wigan fans have got a high bar they set a high bar and that's right because it's Wigan and it's about connecting the vision of of the first team to the community and then exposing it what's and all I suppose you know that's quite hard in a performance sense to just put everything out there isn't it yeah I, sp I suppose it is but if you want to create uh, like a world-class organization and not just be okay uh, I think you've got to open it up you can't shy away from it and uh, Embrace the pressure, embrace the fans' expectations. And me and the players, you know, and I said this to them, if you don't enjoy that, you're, you're in the wrong organisation. Find somewhere easier to work, find, find a different job. I think uh, this club has a right to expect people who, who embrace pressure and, and enjoy it and, and manage to do it with a, or manage to take it on with a, a smile on the face. And that's what we'll be trying to do. Yeah, and recruitment is huge. And, uh, some things that I've heard you say about, you know, we're talking about what you want from people and bringing the right people in. Um, what does that look like? And, and you mentioned not bringing the wrong characters in. So I'm interested what the right characters look like, but also what you mean by the wrong reasons for coming to Wigan. Because for fans and for, for everybody in the game, I think as interested as you are and what the right things are because we can list those as what things are you particularly what alarm bells ring when you're recruiting a player to make you feel like you might not do it if it feels like it's the, a last option or they've run out of options for example if they've exhausted uh, everywhere else overseas and then uh, Wigan and Super League fit the way they talk feels like a 
a second. Talk a good game in order to get the foot through the door. Yeah, or they've just explored every other opportunity, but and then it's the last yeah. chance. Because yeah. the, their agenda is selfishness. There, it's just it's it's getting the self back up to to where they should be, rather than helping a, a world class club like Wigan. And it, and it's not just me that makes these decisions. It's me with with Ian and Chris and and, and Sean. Uh, but we have similar. We're aligned in our thinking. It needs to be people who want to add to the club, not just play and get paid. Uh, even if they play well at times or for spells, it's someone who can uh, add to the club, set high standards on and off the field. Uh, I like the fact, this is me personally, of people who've got the best years ahead of them. I've got a point to prove. I've got some improvement in them. Want to improve. Uh, have that bit of fire in the belly. I feel straight away when you speak to players and... We, I've been involved in conversations with some high-profile players and straight away you ask what they know at the club and you, you can tell they're a bit stuck. And I just find Has that... Has anybody known more about the club than you yet? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I'm not as uh, geeky on club history yeah. and all that as you might think, no. Uh, but if they don't know much or it's clear they've not researched, I just see that as manners and courtesy. Like Even if they didn't... Uh, you know, you say you read an article this morning about me and that's... That's I take that as a sign of respect. So if if someone we speak to from overseas hasn't done that, then it's enough. My personal opinion would be like, let's. Yeah, let's. It made me feel like a bit like your Salford team flash. I was where say that. you speak about hunger and finding people who've got appetite. Well, that team that you were played in that that got to the grand final and whatnot, you had a lot of people who had a point to prove, didn't you? you had a lot of hungry individuals in that team. Self-appointed, anointed misfits. Uh, but we're a lot of lads who were let go or not wanted or, you know, we had injury issues or all the rest of it. But there was a, a common desire to prove people wrong. But the other thing was that a lot of us had come from um, successful clubs. Now, when I first signed at Salford, I realised that that hunger to win and that expectation to win, I thought was just, that was at every club. I've been at Wigan Saints, West Tigers. I thought that was the norm. But I found that other lads who hadn't been in those like, kind of organisations didn't have that pressure on themselves to win every game. And that was something that struck me. And then as the years went on, we kind of signed more players who'd been in those environments. They brought, they brought those values and, and habits to Salford. That alongside with having a point to prove, and, um, that really drove us to the... To, we didn't win it, but we kind of... It was a very successful period for, for a club like Salford who'd usually been near the bottom. Yeah. It's a shit question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's success look like for you this year? It's not that shit a question. He's that you know he's thinking about it, yes, which is yeah. you know that's good. Uh, I think we've got to be travelling in the right direction to, towards winning trophies. You know, you spoke about uh, when I will have a, a punch the air moment, and I, I will celebrate. And I, I say this like privately to my missus and I'll say it to you is I do feel like when I get a trophy in uh, in this role you know I'll, I'll have a smile on my face for, for a little while and I'll feel like you know, for feel, a little while yeah <laughs> I know I can't then just chill out you know but uh, I will feel like I belong then I think and uh, I think if I feel like um, uh, we show signs that we're progressing quickly in that right uh, direction uh, then that'll be considered a success but it can't be too long before we're playing and winning in them big games. I feel like I want to get the turn on this journey. 
I want to bridge that connection you've spoke about. Uh, and again, it's intangible, but if I feel like there's the people are behind us, we're playing a style that uh, is fitting of the club, and, and they're getting they're getting excited about Wigan again. Then uh, I think that'll, in general, you know, there's, there's more little micro goals along the way, but uh, I think that would be a good summary of it. Yeah, flashed this season, big year for rugby league. World Cup at the end of the year. Look, it's a, a massive opportunity for the game to grow, put its best foot forward. What what's getting you excited about this new year? Obviously, the World Cup. Um, when I look at some of the squad lists of some of the teams, I think it's probably the the highest quality playing rosters and coaching rosters, I'd say as well, that it's been for the last few years. I think we'll see a lot of British players and most players actually play the best they've played because there's, I think the World Cup carrot for most individuals playing this year will, will kind of just get the extra 1% and 2% out of them because there's a lot of jerseys um, to be playing for. And it's just great to have the game back, great to have fans back. Um, and I think that's something that I've missed is live sport and, and live rugby league as a spectator because when you're immersed in it for a long time, you don't get to enjoy it as much. But I'm looking forward to going to a good few games and Matt said he's got me in the director's box, which would be great. Yeah, 2022, yeah. the year for hospitality. Did he really say he'd get no, you in the director's no. box? Right, well, it's on camera if now. Ian so Lennon is listening. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, it's an exciting year for rugby league, an exciting year for you, Matt personally I think your appointment is an incredible nod to the journey that you've been on as an individual about the graft behind becoming a coach taking coaching fucking seriously because it's a serious job not appointing people who are popular I think your appointment paves the way I feel for young British coaches to get excited about becoming coaches and that's what's great. And you look at some of the stats, if you look at Spanish junior football or how many coaches they develop, one of our biggest challenges is developing more people like you to bring our younger players just up to that world-class standard. We talk about World Cup years, 2022 is a year for us to really benchmark where we are as a country against other countries. And, and I think coaching, for me, is the secret to our game moving forward. And on that, I think that having a successful playing career should not be a prerequisite to taking a head coaching role. In the NFL, there's a lot of head coaches that haven't played. Uh, there's a lot of defensive and offensive coordinators that have been highly successful that never played to a, a top level. So I think it's really important that Matt, I'm sure, will have a great successful coaching career that that's kind of promoted as much as possible, that you can play, you can coach, you can referee. There's loads of different facets to get involved in the professional uh, phase of, of this sport. Yeah, so that's it. Episode one of Out of Your League. We've been delighted. What a great guest. For a pie. Studying English at uni. <laughs> My mind's blown. But that's episode one of Out of Your League. As I said, we'll be back every other week this year. So 17 episodes to look forward throughout the course of what's going to be a spectacular 2022 for Rugby League. Please download this podcast on whichever provider you choose to use and make sure you tune in next time round.